get you a copper kettle Get you a copper coil Fill it with blue-made corn mash And never more you'll toy There's still negative stereotypes about the old moonshiners in the Appalachian region, but making and selling moonshine was often crucial to putting food on the table. Didn't make too much, but they made enough that the family could survive. And we lived on the farm, and we farmed too, and we survived. Whiskey, that's how they got by. That's a lot better than letting our families go hungry and starve. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, shining a light on moonshine. My daddy made whiskey My granddaddy, he did too Later in the show, how one small community in South Carolina sold liquor despite the growing opposition to liquor sales in the rest of the state. But first, when Julia Maggard began thinking about research topics for her honors seminar at the University of Virginia's College at Wise, she was drawn to the story of moonshining in southwestern Virginia. Having roots in that area, she interviewed children of moonshiners from the 1940s era. What she found was that moonshining was often a crucial economic supplement for families, Julia, tell me about the part of Appalachia where you grew up and where your great-grandfather was a moonshiner. I grew up in southwestern Virginia, the coal fields of the Appalachian Mountains, where a lot of coal camps were nestled in the haulers, and many people made their money off of coal. Growing up, we always heard stories about moonshining and you know how it affected many of the people there. A lot of them were just that, just stories. And I wanted to reach out and make those tangible so that we can actually hear those stories from people who lived it. Had you heard family stories about your great-grandfather's moonshining? I heard about how he would sell to family and friends and people throughout the community. But he actually stopped moonshining when he founded a church. Tell me about your great-grandfather. What was his name, and had he come from a long line of moonshiners? Well, they all called him Mac. You know, he was very, very a straightforward person. You know, he kind of believed that life was like a tree. You were like a leaf. You're here, you play your part, and then you're gone. And there's nothing more than that. So he utilized moonshining to just allow him and his other like family members, his kids. I believe he had 16 children. He wanted to keep those leaves alive, and through the moonshining, he was able to do that. He had 16 children. You just never hear about that these days. No, this was quite a long time ago. Um, My grandfather was, let's see, I believe he was 75 when he passed. He was the oldest of the 16 children. So my great-grandfather was born, my goodness, probably sometime in the late 1800s. 
Had he always been a moonshiner, or did he have another profession also? He was a farmer. Uh, Many people throughout the region were small farmers. They didn't make a whole lot of crops, very small plots of land, mainly subsistence farming. But a lot of times, if there was a bad crop, or even if, you know, there was great crop, but the price was too low, they'd have to utilize moonshining in order to get enough money to survive. So you interviewed a number of people who had parents who were moonshiners. Did you interview anybody who was a moonshiner themselves? I did. We'll call him Jim. Jim was a runner. And basically what a runner means is that he takes the moonshine from the hidden places in the forest and in the hollers and takes them to the buyers and gets a fee for bringing that from the hiding places to the consumer. There was an intense camaraderie in the moonshining community in that region. And Jim, a rum runner from that region, gives us a fantastic example of the brotherhood that occurred between these men. Uh, there was this man, the kind of neighbors, you know, and he had a bunch of whiskey made and he got in bad shape. And he, he couldn't get out and sell it, and, and he's needing to be operated on. They all bunched up and put it in the wagon, and... Uh, they all helped him? Yeah, and they hauled it off for him and sold it so he could get his operation. Was there kind of a sense of community about the, about the moonshine, you know, you take care of each other? Well... He said to me that day, there wasn't anybody who was going to stop us. It was very touching to see an 85-year-old man sitting across from me recalling helping to save the life of one of his friends and those tears standing in his eyes. Share with me some of the other stories that you came across. It must have been remarkable. It was One of the misconceptions about moonshiners is that they made a wealthy profit off of their product. But what actually occurred was those that made the moonshine itself would sell it to neighbors and friends. And many neighbors and friends didn't have very much money to spend on the product. So they would only be able to charge just enough to help make ends meet. Poverty even reached the soles of these people's feet. One of the sons of a moonshiner described how they would put the cardboard in the soles of their shoes to keep the rocks from coming up between the holes. We got one pair of shoes a year. If they got holes in them, we would find some stuff that had leather or rubber or something and put in our shoe to cover the hole so we wouldn't be walking on the gravels. I, I, I put cardboard in mine before, and uh, the cardboard would do pretty good if you uh, if it wasn't raining. But if it was raining, it'd get wet, and that, and that hole come right back in there, and you'd have, I mean, you know, you was walking on the ground. <laughs> um, how ingenious were their efforts to hide the stills they made? To, to hide the still and successfully get whiskey to and from the woods like that was incredibly 
hard work. <laughs> they would have to assemble the entire still, which is hundreds of pounds, mm. in a remote area with running water. They would have to cut down birch wood in that very location due to the fact that birch wood smokes very, very little. So smoke was often the reason moonshiners were detected and prosecuted. And uh, they would have to move the still every two runs in order to maintain its secrecy. How long is a run? A run takes about, for normal stuff that you don't age, it's about a few days. But if you age it, it'll take, you can age it two weeks. You can even age it a month and then move it before they were able to do another run. Now, that doesn't include the 15 barrels of mash and of things that they would have to pour into the still in order to produce the whiskey. It was very difficult work. But these were very hardworking and tough people. They faced a lot of odds and tried to prevail in the only way they knew how. But sort of like with drug running, a negative stereotype is the idea that they had guns and they'd defend their stills. Did you hear about that? I did. But in the small community in which they were in, many of the revenuers were friends. The revenuers are the government agents after them? Yes. Revenuers were the ones paid to track them down. And many would become friends through whiskey exchanges. (laughs) And they would say, well, you know, we'll keep you stocked on moonshine if you let us know a couple days ahead of time when you're going to be checking around. And oftentimes they would. There was this one revenuer, though, that always told uh, my great-grandfather, I'll get you one day. And he always said to watch his back because he said, I'm going to get you one day, Mac. You also interviewed the daughter of a moonshiner. Yeah. The daughter of a moonshiner described his illegal activity as being something that was always kept away from them. Uh, Do you remember any conversations with your mom about moonshiner, or was it always something real distant from you guys? It was distant from us. He had a big wagon and a pretty team of horses, and off he'd go. He'd tell mom, I'll be back after a while now. Moonshine became a medicinal item for them to use when their kids had fevers or when they were developing a sore throat. Especially in that region, they didn't have money or access to a lot of the modern medical advances. So even going to the doctor was something you really could not afford. Because if you think about families today, if one kid gets a cold or a flu, almost all of the children get it. You can't afford to send seven children to the doctor. You just had to make do with what you could. And moonshine was an inexpensive, relatively inexpensive item to utilize to help stem a fever or ease a sore throat. Would they mix it with stuff? Well, one of the moonshiner's sons actually told me about a drink called a hot toddy that his father would make. And he would put cinnamon sticks and those cherry candies and boil them in moonshine and add a little bit of water and make them drink it when they had a fever and make them go straight to bed. And sure enough, the next day they'd sweat it out. 
You know, it's so funny. Nowadays, we have all these artisanal distilleries and craft beer houses and vineyards, and people love it and admire the craftsmanship and the differences in the recipes. I wonder if you came to think, you know, moonshining is is like that. Too bad they couldn't have enjoyed the open-air admiration from people about their craft. Absolutely. Moonshining was somewhat of an art form. The process was very intricate. They put in the birch bark and give it this like woodsy flavor. So they were artisans in and of themselves, despite the fact that they were also outlaws. Did you have a different feeling about this part of your heritage when you were growing up? Were you more conflicted when you were young, but have come to a different sort of admiration for it now? I was very conflicted about moonshining in my family's past. I knew that it was something that was illegal, and I didn't agree with the consumption of alcohol in excess. So I always saw it as this black mark on our family history. But when I came to study how it was so necessary for their survival, I became almost proud of the fact that they did it because it was their tool to take care of their kids and their way of taking no help or as little help as possible to take care of their family. Have you been getting a lot of interest from people now that you've done this research? I have. People are beginning to ask more questions about moonshining as a whole and are beginning to drop some of the generalizations about it. I find it so interesting how when you take history and you listen to it from the mouth of someone who lived it, it comes to life and it gives you a brand new perspective on what actually happened. My daddy made whiskey My granddaddy he did too We ain't paid no whiskey tax Since 1792 We just lay there by the juniper Julia Maggard is a graduate of the University of Virginia's College at Wise. Up next, dry counties, wet counties, and prohibition. By the turn of the 20th century, the prohibition movement was gaining strength in the United States and would be in full force from 1920 to 1933. My next guest is Michael Lewis, a professor of sociology at Christopher Newport University. He's the author of The Coming of Southern Prohibition, The Dispensary System, and The Battle Over Liquor in South Carolina, 1907 through 1915. His book explores one community in South Carolina that wrestled with the ethical and financial stakes of selling alcohol when there was growing sentiment against it. What was the genesis of the hostility to liquor in the United States in the lead-up to all this? That's multifaceted. Some of it's religious, some of it's moral, some of it's saloons. If you've ever been around a really sleazy dive and you see drunks kind of staggering out into the street, you kind of captured what concerned people. 
folks were tired of playing political games with the saloon keepers. They would pass a law, the saloon keepers would ignore it, they'd pass another law, that would, too would get ignored. And finally, folks said, you know what, enough's enough. So folks started passing local prohibition laws. We can't have a saloon within X amount of distance from a church, say, or a school, the idea being that you want to protect folks who are largely innocent. And then that would spread from there to whole neighborhoods and eventually whole cities and, in some cases, whole counties. And was South Carolina the first to decide to step in and have the state regulate the sale of alcohol instead of the saloons? They were one of the earliest. A couple of other states had tried it and regulated it by simply banning liquor. But South Carolina opted for a slightly different course to regulate and sell all liquor through their own state-run liquor stores. In 1893, South Carolina's governor, Ben Tillman, decided he wanted a middle course. He didn't think prohibition would work. He knew that unregulated saloons were a problem. So he decided for a middle ground. The state would run its own liquor stores. It could prevent minors from drinking, habitual drunkards from drinking, women from drinking. The idea was you could buy liquor there. You couldn't consume it on the premises, thus eliminating a lot of the social chaos. And at the same time, the state would recoup a whole lot of money from liquor sales. So it seemed like a win-win. Was that a hard argument for him to make? It was an incredibly hard argument for him to make because on one side, he had prohibitionists who wanted much more. And on the other side, he had saloon keepers and other folks who wanted much less. He had to browbeat the state legislature. In fact, he kept them through Christmas Eve, 1892, until and wouldn't let them go home until they passed what he wanted. But what he envisioned actually came to pass. It really was a huge revenue boost for many years for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. For a good 15 years, that state was awash in liquor money, and they were able to do all sorts of things with their um, road improvements and schools and whatnot that other states were not able to do, all without raising taxes in any appreciable way compared to a lot of other southern states. He sounds like a good politician, but he was actually a loathsome he was, he was a good politician, but of course being loathsome by our standards probably equated to being a good politician 100 years ago or 125 years ago. He fought for the Confederacy. He participated openly and proudly in efforts to suppress African-American voters. He killed many of them, bragged about it on the floor of the U.S. Senate after he became a senator. Killed them after the Civil War? After the Civil War. This is during Reconstruction. African-Americans were trying to assert their civil rights to vote. A lot of white folks wanted none of that and organized terrorist organizations that would go find African-Americans who were trying to vote, round them up, persuade them not to do so on risk of their life and kill a few just to make sure that everybody got the message. And he bragged about it. He bragged about this. He, his his uh, contention was that other states didn't know how to handle there, and you can use the, imagine the racial epithet that came after that. But in South Carolina, he bragged they knew how to deal with this problem. He also imagined that you could use these state liquor stores to prevent African-Americans from drinking too much, although to make state-run liquor stores worth it financially, everybody's got to drink. So much of your research ended up focusing on one particular county in South Carolina, and this is Aiken County, right across the Savannah River from Augusta, Georgia. And in particular, the town of North Augusta, which as the name implies is just north of Augusta, separated by that river. The state of Georgia voted in statewide prohibition, so nobody could sell liquor in 1907. Shortly after that, and by shortly I mean a few days, 
after that. <laughs> the Aiken County Liquor Board decided it would be a wonderful idea to put a liquor store right at the foot of the bridge that connects North Augusta with Augusta, reasoning that all those 40,000-some people in Augusta were going to need some place to drink. And most of them couldn't afford to have it sent, have alcohol sent to them through the mail, which, of course, was still legal at the time. So most folks would have to walk across the bridge to get liquor. Huh. And did they? Oh, yeah, they did. There's this wonderful quote from the Columbia Record. This is in South Carolina, where the editor is actually poking fun at these uh, at these Georgians. Because they now suddenly are finding themselves without alcohol. Uh, alcohol. And the writer says, Not a bar open in our sister state. Not a little brown jug that is not empty. Not a julep. Not a highball. Not a drink. Folks who are wont to cast slurs about South Carolina booze are evading customs officials and slipping over the line to get a morning gulp and are mighty glad to get even the stuff that South Carolinians have been drinking. (laughs) Extra coaches are required to transport our cracker friends from across the line and back again. Augusta, along with all the other cracker towns, has gone dry. Bad dry. And that part of South Carolina on the opposite side of the river has gone wet. Bad wet. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, so Aiken County is in South Carolina, just right. across the line. People are streaming in from Georgia. Right. The coffers are filling up. That's right. That one liquor store sold more liquor, roughly $4 million worth of liquor in any one year by our standards today. They were able to pave all their roads, which would have been an unusual thing for a town their size. We're talking about maybe 500 people. They had streetlights, no other town of their size had streetlights, probably in the entire country, certainly in South Carolina. Sewage systems, new schools, and nobody in North Augusta paid any municipal taxes for several years. They became a real star community in the entire South. They really did. They really did. A place where everybody would want to live. They got written up in papers. People knew about North Augusta as a place to come visit and see. The state did two things. One, it empowered local officials to decide where to put their liquor stores. The other thing that happened between 1893 when the state system started and 1907 when North Augusta got its liquor store was that the state system was abolished because there was so much corruption involved. So when the state legislature did that, they said to the counties, it's yours. If you want to continue, by all means, go ahead. But the state is now out of it. Oh, so Aiken County continued and and took all the revenue for For itself? itself. Yes, yes. Imagine $4 million in revenue for one county for one year. What finally turned the spigot off? Well, the Georgia legislature did because they realized how much money they were losing. In fact, the secretary of the treasury there, who was an ardent prohibitionist, ran for president as the prohibitionist candidate in 1896, ran for governor of the state of Georgia as a prohibitionist candidate. A man named Seaborn Wright was named secretary of the treasury In 1908, just after this law in Georgia went into place, he took one look at the books and said, oh, we got a big problem. And he persuaded, this is a prohibitionist, persuaded the state legislature of Georgia to allow near beer because, of course, near beer wasn't intoxicating. So Augusta, as did many other places in Georgia, opened up what they called near beer saloons. Everybody knew what was going on, but they just looked the other way. So Georgia's state legislature got its revenue stream back. But of course, if you could go to a near beer saloon in Augusta, why cross the bridge to get the South Carolina rot gut? And what could you get in a near beer saloon? You know, that would have depended on the saloon. There's a story, 
may be apocryphal of police officers walking in to investigate what was going on there, and they wound up having to arrest the police officers for public intoxication. (laughs) You don't know if that's really true, but you can imagine. And did that work for Georgia for a while? It did. It did. Until they finally gave up the ghost and said, okay, what we really want is a law that stops all liquor sales. And what precipitated that for them was the passage of the federal law that prohibited interstate liquor sales. Then they thought, okay, we can really shut it off. Help us understand what was happening nationally at that time that really, really we could turn off all alcohol sales? There was a few things. One, the, the biggest one most scholars will tell you was World War I and this sense that we need to have healthy, sober, fighting young men to be able to deal with the enemy and the very real concerns that folks had about what Germany was doing. It didn't hurt that it was German beer that was intoxicating a lot of folks. So it was a good bit of anti-German sentiment that was doing it. And, you know, the folks who had been campaigning against liquor had been working this for a real long time. I mean, you're 25 years from the early 1890s until 1918 or 19 when the federal government finally passes a law, and they kept chipping away at it, both in terms of being real conscious about electing folks who would only do their bidding the same way that a public interest group would today. Was there a perception that more Americans were drunk back then and had alcohol problems than we perceive today? Yes, there was, and and they were right. Our best measures, both in terms of how much alcohol was produced and in uh, like death rates from cirrhosis, those kinds of things that we can reasonably equate with alcoholic behavior— All those numbers were way, way staggeringly higher, a good two times, three times higher in the 1880s and 1890s than they are today. We didn't reach our pre-prohibition consumption level until the 1970s. Had you ever been that far south for that long as you were during the period where you were researching the (laughs) dispensary issue? No, no. I had never been... Let me think. I don't think I'd ever been to South Carolina beforehand. And they, uh, especially, you know, the folks down there are so nice and they always want to show me their bottles. Bottles of what? The bottles that were used to bottle the liquor during the dispensary in order to ensure that you were drinking South Carolina liquor and not somebody else's liquor. They had to take all the alcohol that was bought for the dispensary system, have it all shipped to Columbia, and then in a big warehouse there, rebottle it in South Carolina embossed bottles. Folks there got real wise real quick, though, because they realized if you bought a bottle of whatever, rum, and you drank it, you would then have the bottle, which you could then reuse, to put whatever you wanted into it. So the folks in the state got wise, and they would change the embossing every year or so. And in doing so, they inadvertently created a collector's item. So there are folks down there who will tell you that they were remodeling their homes and tore out a wall and found all these bottles. <laughs> Folks will tell you, have told me that if you dig underneath the oldest oak tree in the backyard, you're undoubtedly going to find some of these because that's where grandpappy stored it so grandmama wouldn't know that he was drinking. <laughs> yeah. Rivers and lakes and landfills are supposed to be lousy with these things. And folks bring them when I come to town to show me them. Well, Michael Lewis, thank you so much for sharing this on With Good Reason. It's been my pleasure, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Michael Lewis is a professor of sociology at Christopher Newport University. 
He's the author of The Coming Southern Prohibition, The Dispensary System and the Battle Over Liquor in South Carolina. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Thousands of studies have documented climate changes on land and in the air. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we'll look at two island communities affected by rising sea levels, one in the Pacific Ocean and one right here at home. Residents of Tangier Island could become some of America's first climate refugees unless they get a much-needed seawall. Through a partnership with Google, an online project is hoping to raise awareness of Tangier's plight by allowing people from anywhere in the world to visit the endangered island virtually. Producer Kelly Libby is a collaborator on the project and sends us this audio postcard. That pole, that's the last remaining pole of the dock that used to be here. It was a long dock and that's where we tie our boat and now that's gone. Carol Pruitt-Moore is a resident of Tangier Island, and almost every day she takes her boat to this place, a marshy area north of Tangier called Uppards. And all through here was um, uh, fig trees and um, wild rose bushes and asparagus and wild anise and um, just wild roses everywhere. It was beautiful. It's all gone now. Before the 1930s, she says, there was a community here called Canaan. Pruitt Moore's grandmother lived here. Today, the last remnants of Canaan are being washed into the Chesapeake Bay, including what's left of a graveyard. Among the sea glass and arrowheads Pruitt Moore comes here to collect are headstones and human bones. For residents of Tangier Island, Uppards represents not just a piece of the island's history, but its possible future. That's because the rise of the sea can be measured by the loss of a whole community. The Uppards is in some ways a a way for them to think about the urgency to which they have to to move forward with. Matthew Gibson is executive director of the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. I'm here working with Gibson and his team on a project that makes it possible to virtually visit Tangier. We're here through a partnership between VFH and Google Outreach to capture the first 360-degree street views of the island. It's here and then out to there. You're going to press pause, pause there. Right there before you do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna Normally, there. Google Street Views, which allow you to virtually plop down at any address on Earth, are captured by Google Street View cars. You might have seen one. They're colorful cars with big cameras attached to the top. But to capture remote places like Tangier, a different tool is employed. And then I'm going to cross the river. Cross it's the called mountains. the Google Trekker. I'm going to go up the West Ridge. It's hard to describe it. It's, uh, it's basically, you've got this big globe over your head, this big, colorful backpack around your body, and whenever you walk down the street with it, people give you looks because they've never seen anything like it. What is that you have on your bike? This is a Google Trekker. A Google Trekker? Yeah. Oh, okay. So have you ever used Google Maps or Google, Google Street View where you can like zoom around different streets and things yeah. like that? Yeah. My husband showed me yesterday where we live. Well. On Google. <laughs> that's right. And then, now you're actually going to be able to move through the streets of Tangier All and right. to the beaches, which would be kind of cool. Yes. It's, it's, it's going to be a way to hopefully help you guys to 
to create a narrative about yourselves for advocacy. So. I see. So Tangier will be here tomorrow. All right. You know, that's, yeah. what, that's the idea. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. If it will help us. That's right. That's, that's, that's what we're trying that's to do. That's what it is, huh? <laughs> Take care. Outfitted with this 50-pound backpack, Gibson and his partner in the project, Peter Headland, hiked around the entire island on its streets, where the most common form of transportation is the golf cart, but also along its shoreline. Headland is the director of VFH's Encyclopedia Virginia, and he captured more than a mile of Tangier's main beach. It's a beautiful sandy beach. I mean, you might think you're, you know, looking out at the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean when you're standing on it. And behind the beach are marsh areas full of all sorts of migratory birds and, you know, wading birds. And there's not a soul there. It's completely deserted. It's a really pristine environment. And so we wanted to make sure we not only got the man-made environment at Tangier, but also the natural. Tangier Island needs a seawall to protect it from further erosion. But some policymakers who have the power to make that happen may never even step foot on the island. It's out of the way, in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay, and getting there requires taking a long ferry boat ride. That's why Headland says capturing street views is important. I think if you're trying to, you know, evoke sympathy or solidarity for your cause, it's important for people to have a sense of you know, what you are. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to sort of walk down the main street of your community. And so at the very minimum, we've provided a way for people to virtually visit the place and see what a special, unique community it is at, you know, sort of the ground level. The street views captured by Gibson and Headland are now available on Google Maps and Google Earth. For With Good Reason, I'm Kelly Libby. People living on American coastal islands like Tangier face losing their homes and moving inland. But what if there was no place to go? That's the situation faced by small Polynesian island nations like Kiribati, located in the Pacific, about midway between Hawaii and Australia. Anthony Bosey teaches at Virginia Military Institute in the Department of English Rhetoric and Humanistic Studies, He's researching the economic and philosophical questions when rising waters destroy entire nations. Tony, is it true that in five years, the island won't be able to provide food and water to the 10,000 citizens there, and in 20, it will be gone? I think when people talk about disappearing land, they want to know when will the land disappear, right? They have a picture of the last few colonists sitting on the island, like the band on the Titanic, like doing what they do as the island dips below the waves. But I'm certain that's not going to be when the issue actually arises, right? The issue is now, because groundwater is becoming corrupted and plants aren't going to grow in levels of saline, that level of salinization. So I think the real question is, not when the island disappears, but when is the island no longer sustainable for life? And that's now or in the next couple of years. This has drawn your attention because you've been looking at the plight of people who are a nation who lose their nation. Right. I mean, even in your question, we note the problem. The only way we have to talk about these things is with words like nation and state, which imply things like proximity and territory. So when you lose your territory and you no longer have proximity, we don't have a word for that. We don't have a way to deal with it philosophically, legally, anything. If they're, if they're not a citizen, how do we deal with them? If they are a citizen of a government, you generally have to interact with that government about their citizenry, but the government's gone, so who do you call? 
very least, a cynical person might say, just send them back home. But where is home at that point, right? The territory in this case is going to be completely gone or in another case might be politically and socially different in an undesirable way. So say they all go to Australia. When they show up in Australia, what do we call them? They're certainly not Australian citizens yet. There's no way to understand citizenship without a state. And again, we don't have a way to understand a state without territory and proximity. So you have a maybe government that might be sovereign or maybe doesn't exist. There's a rule of law that these people should be beholden to. But right, this is the, the domino effect of the whole thing. The entirety of our international exchange, how we deal with visitors, how we deal with foreign nationals, how we deal with treaties and agreements, all of this is centered on the idea that there are states and people are members of those states. Let's imagine they would go to Australia. Sure. Must Australia accept them? If they were to come to Australia, would they be given over government lands and said, these lands are now the lands of the islanders? So that would be my hope. Although the U.S. government doesn't have the greatest track record with them, the Native American nations in the United States, which are domestically dependent sovereignties, would be a good model. Must Australia accept them? That's an unfair question for anybody outside of Australia to answer. That'd be paternalistic. I think one of the reasons why Australia stands out is we want wherever they end up, if they end up somewhere, and again, these people do want to stay contiguous. They don't want to be put into diaspora and thrown all over the world. So if they need to stay together, we need to find a place that has enough land and enough money to support this. Also probably somewhere that's in a similar climate, because it would be horrible to drop them in the middle of Montana when they've lived in a tropical paradise their whole life. Somewhere that's relatively cultural, culturally similar, where there is some of that island culture that still exists in Australia, right? So it seems like a really good place to go. And hopefully they will accept them. I think the big concern is going to be money, right? Should Australia foot the bill? And the answer to that is certainly no. So do we need a generous government with proximity to ocean life? Or do we need a system of laws at the UN level to say, how do we handle people whose countries disappear from underneath them? Well, we most certainly need new legal codes and systems that are going to deal with this. This isn't going to be the last island to disappear. Certainly not. The problem, though... I worked with the UN briefly, and they're not exactly the quickest people to get things done. Um, it's not going to be done fast enough, at least for the people, say, Kiribati. I mean, we're, talk again, talking about people that need to start leaving now. What are the islanders themselves thinking these days? They're very much torn between what should happen within the next 20 years. Yeah, most don't want to leave. Um, the population is aging, and it is of people that this is where they've lived and it is their home. And as you've pointed out, it's a very special and unique place. And they're pretty confident they're never going to see its likes again. So when reporters go in or when polls are taken, it's usually a fit, almost a 50-50 split or sometimes even weighing towards people that just don't want to leave. Even when presented with the fact of, look, if you stay here, you will die. If international aid comes, it's going to come to take you away. It's not going to come to help you stay here. And the answer is still fine. This is my home. I'll stay with it. Go down with the ship. Like I said earlier, it really is going to be a half a nation full of people like the band on the Titanic in the movie who are just doing what they do, living their daily lives until they're swallowed by the deep. Sad. Yeah, it's very sad, but it's also not ours to tell them otherwise. We shouldn't want to be people to tell them otherwise. There are arguments, there are ethical considerations that we might have a cosmopolitan responsibility to intervene in this case. Some might even call it stopping a suicide in a sense, which we sort of think is legally and ethically a good idea. But on the flip side, showing up somewhere and telling somebody they have to leave their home when they don't want to is also paternalism, and it's also coercive. So it's a very sticky wicket. And the best case scenario, are there mechanisms at the global 
nation level where we may pay for flights and boat trips and such and pay for resettling families and groups of children and that kind of thing. So um, while there are options principally centered around charities like UNICEF and Oxfam and the Red Cross, there's no official mechanism in place. The hope would be probably, unfortunately, trying to peg some notion of responsibility for climate change, manage some form of bill or penalty because of those effects on climate change, put all that money in a pot. That'll be what pays for the boats, and that'll be what helps, say, Australia build more roads and build buildings. I think the most important thing is going to be splitting up the cost. I think that nations will be more happy to take on people if they know they will have help supporting those people. So are nations like the United States, which contributes to global warming, be asked to shoulder more of the bill? Absolutely. At least that's my suggestion. Not only because we're in part part responsible for the problem, um, and we're going to be even more responsible as things are looking now with the withdrawal from Paris Accords and things like that, but we also have the capacity to do so. Will you at any point play a role in informing some of the global leaders who may be looking at the intricacies of how to save these people? That would be the hope. One of the few places where philosophers are still respected as something other than navel gazers is at the UN. I've worked with and under some professors that have helped write, like the UN Bill of Rights was principally written by philosophers and and, and legal theorists. And there's like two of us in the world that are doing anything about this, really. It's almost never talked about. It's very little covered. The last major paper published was published about five years ago by a philosopher at Yale, but that's really the last we've heard of it. So I think once the governments of the world realize there's an issue and start casting about for people with answers, there's only going to be a few of us to find. Is there ancient wisdom that you could share with us where this has happened before and how people looked at loss of nationhood? Plato does talk about Atlantis a little bit, but he just wants to offer it as, hey, this is a thing that could happen. We should be concerned about it. Maybe we should think about having an answer for it. Also, you get Roman historians who are concerned about a lot of the volcanic eruptions that happened in ancient Italy. Not quite the same because it's not as though Italy disappeared, but we are talking about large population centers that all of a sudden become useless and uninhabitable. So there are instances in the texts, instances in the legends, um, Atlantis being a principle in the instances of a legends point. Um, Iceland has a history of disappearing land and Norse mythology has histories of disappearing land. In almost all cases, these are cautionary tales about respecting the fierceness of the planet. Very rarely are they anything about what's the legal precedent we can discover here. The real answers are going to have to come from high-minded philosophy and people pouring through thousands of pages of books and precedent and things. That's not something that really makes people care or makes things pleasant. Why legal theorists and why the UN should focus on this is because the environment is important and the environment's always been important. That's a message that we give to children, right? Children understand that the environment is important. Um, The Lorax is a fine example. Or when I was a kid in elementary school, read a book called The Great Capoc Tree. It's about a logger in Brazil. And he falls asleep against a tree and somewhere on the fringes of conscious reality, the animals start to come to him and express to him what he's doing. And a snake comes and talks about how it lives in the roots and birds come and talks about how how they live in the leaves and about how he's destroying this world, this habitat for these animals and how massive of an impact that is. It's much more than just cutting down a single tree. And I suspect that 
there's some break then where we have these elementary school students who love this book and take those messages home and seem to talk about it and care about animals. And then something happens over the next 20, 30 years, and we seem to forget about it. Um, we need to be aware of the fact that our climate change isn't just it's getting a little warmer. And it isn't just you know losing parts. I know that Louisiana is suffering from lost land too, and that's unfortunate, but they have other places to go. The U.S. government can help them in some ways, right? We're not cutting down the tree in that situation. You're only pruning a few branches. But when it comes to something like Kiribati, the tree will be gone, right? We have effectively, with our carbon footprints, been the logger in the Great Kapok Tree. And we are destroying an entire habitat and destroying an entire home for many organisms and people. Tony Bosey teaches in the Department of English Rhetoric and Humanistic Studies at Virginia Military Institute. Coming up next, the eye of the hurricane. Is there a better way to assess the potential damage of an approaching hurricane? Stephanie Zick, a professor of meteorology at Virginia Tech, is working on just that. And she's studying how, when, and where hurricanes lose their power. Stephanie, you've developed a new way to determine the intensity of hurricanes. How have we been measuring intensity up to now? Right. So in the Atlantic, we are able to fly into hurricanes. After they form, we generally go out and do reconnaissance. But there's another method for estimating intensity. It's called the Dvorak technique. And it uses satellite imagery. It looks at the shape of cloud patterns. And you can estimate the intensity of a hurricane without flying into one. So that's very important. Um, What we're starting to see are some features that we can look for in satellite imagery or in the rainfall patterns that can be useful in predicting the future intensity change. And it's basically comparing the shape to a circle. So that's what I've been doing in my research. I've been comparing the shape of the rainfall pattern to a circle. And I've been looking at, I've devised a few metrics that do that and they measure um, the shape um, in a few different ways. They're sort of attributes of a circle that we're measuring. Um, One of them is symmetry, so the symmetry of the pattern. Another one is how close is the rainfall to the center of the storm? And whenever precipitation is closer to the center, the energetics are much better for the storm. Can you name some of the well-known past storms that show probably had we measured these characteristics, we might have projected intensity? Right. A great one that a lot of people have heard about is Hurricane Katrina from 2005. It made landfall in South Florida as a Category 1, but then it moved out over the Gulf and intensified very rapidly into a Category 5 hurricane. And the shape metrics all show this consolidation into a very compact storm, very circular. Then as it reached peak intensity, these metrics actually indicate that the structure is changing. It's becoming less like a circle. And so this, these indicators actually happened before it reached peak intensity. So if we're able to sort of 
see these sorts of shape changes happen, we might be able to have a better indication when these storms are going to lose intensity as Hurricane Katrina did as it approached landfall. And the importance of that is we could have, had we used your metrics, perhaps have warned people to the east of the storm it was going to be worse there? Yeah, in these types of storms, especially if we're thinking about storms that are going to be dumping a lot of precipitation. If we're able to target the areas that will see the heaviest precipitation, then we can put out a better forecast. Can you tell me about a few of the other storms where you applied your model in looking at past storms? Right. So I've looked at basically all the storms in the Gulf of Mexico since 1998. And all of the storms that were category three strength or higher actually weakened in their approach to landfall. That's a startling thing. Um, That included Hurricane Lily from 2002, Hurricane Ivan from 2004, Hurricane Rita from 2005, Hurricane Isaac from 2012, Hurricane Ivan, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Rita. These were storms that became very large out over the Gulf of Mexico, and they, they affected broad regions as they made landfall. Luckily, they did weaken as they approached landfall. Hurricane Rita from 2005 made landfall in Texas, um, and it was just after Hurricane Katrina, and I know that a lot of people from Louisiana had actually evacuated to Texas. Ivan was from 2004. It made landfall in the Florida Panhandle, It also weakened slightly as as it approached landfall. Um, Although it did weaken, there were a lot of tornadoes uh, with it as it made landfall, especially on the eastern side. Hurricane Isaac from 2012 uh, was another great example of a storm like this. It was a little bit smaller than these sort of massive storms like Hurricane Katrina and Rita, but it also had a very large storm surge. It made landfall in Louisiana, but it impacted a lot of the areas that had impacted Katrina. All of these storms show indications of these shape changes prior to landfall. So prior to their losing intensity and prior to them making landfall, they show that there are these shape changes happening when we broadly looked at the precipitation field. So if we're able to capture that these shape changes are happening, then we might expect them to weaken as they approach landfall. I have current research where I'm, I'm looking into the physical processes so that we can um, forecast that better. So for instance, is there dry air um, being brought into the storm? Um, so if we're able to tie this research better to the physical processes that are leading to the weakening, um, that will also help to get better forecasts out. Stephanie Zick, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you, Sarah. It was great being here. Stephanie Zick is a professor of meteorology at Virginia Tech. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, 
and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. And our intern is Adriana Gallo. For the podcast, go to iTunes or to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.